Hey guys, in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And in order to find great advertisers, we need to learn a little more about you. So please go to podsurvey.com slash watch and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you a little better. That way, we can show advertisers just how great our listeners are. Plus, once you've completed the survey, you can choose to enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash watch. Podsurvey, P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y.com slash watch. You know how to spell that. Thanks for your help. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he left his Oscar in the jungle. It's Andy Greenwald. Wait, did somebody do that last night? No, I was like combining True Detective with the Oscars, man. Oh, because, you know, I read this morning that Rami like fell after yeah. he got his Oscar and yeah, the paramedics yeah. came and I... And I thought maybe you were chasing that a little bit. No, no, no. I got notes, basically. Yeah, we're going to talk Oscars and we're going to talk True Detective. We're going to we're going to squeeze as much out of the the Greenwald orange as we can today. Uh, Andy, (laughs) you know, I I, let's do Oscars first. I did not get a chance to watch these awards live, so to speak. I, I watched up until Ruth Carter. Uh, one for Black Panther costume design. And then I had to go, uh, watch True Detective, um, so that we could do the flat circle. But as someone who experienced the the three hour and 15 minute show, give me your top notes. What are the takeaways? I I, I want to say, wait, Ruth Carter won for costumes or for, because who who is the woman from Black Panther who won and then took out her phone to find her speech and then couldn't find it on her phone. And I've never related to anyone more in that moment. Did you see that? It was uh, Hannah Beachler. Hannah Beachler was like, I have my thank you. Hold on. And then that terror, like I, f- I feel that all the time when like I, I have like a, a security gate code to my daughter's school on my phone and I'm just trying to pick her up, but then I can't open the correct note. Like, dude, just use paper, yeah. use paper. It's much better. Okay. Um, I watched all the Oscars and here's my takeaway, Chris, after all the buildup, after all the uh, Sturm and Drang, after all the criticism, after the, all the just litany of unforced errors and self-owns that the Academy pulled on the long, strange journey to last night. I thought it was a great show. You love I Holly. thought it was a spirited, brisk, entertaining, diverse, interesting, bright, and mostly democratic evening. And one of the better award shows I can remember in recent memory, both in terms of uh, show itself and in the winners. So when did you realize that? Like, what was it? What was the the moment that you were like, this is good? Was it Amy, Maya and Tina coming out and being the de facto sort of show openers outside of Queen? Was it, what was it that kind of got you feeling like this is all going in the right direction? Well, there were a couple things. And honestly, what I noticed first was the vibe. It was brisk. And one of the reasons it was brisk is because even going into commercials, the voice didn't say coming up. A tribute to the role dentists have played in cinema. Plus, you are dancing. so anti-montage, man. I hate montages, and they there weren't any. And also, as much as I've enjoyed, like I thought Jimmy Kimmel did a great job the last few years, there is a sense of obligation that we have to sort of get through this part, and that's and parts that we are not necessarily uh, checking for. Now, I you know I was on this podcast, uh, one of my rare appearances on this, <laughs> this podcast, podcast not too long ago, <laughs> saying that I thought it was a mistake not to have a host. And I was deeply wrong. 
because there was a briskness to it. And it's not just that there weren't montages, but they were really judicious with the get off the stage music as well. Yeah. A couple times they just cut people's mic when they tried to have the third dude talk. That, when when the folks from thought, Vice won for makeup, I think they really were just like, they, they really dropped the bass on those guys. And that was early that they did that. Later on, though, they seemed really understanding. Again, this is so weird because, and, and obviously the people who made the decisions for the award categories and things are not the same arm of the Academy that produced and directed the show. But uh, whoever produced and directed the show this year seemed to have a surprisingly firm grasp on what people want from the show. And what people want from the show is the acceptance speeches. Like That is the interesting, unpredictable moment, generally. And I thought that the show embraced that and understood it, which allowed for you know speeches that were both just sort of gleeful and exciting, speeches that were uh, political, speeches that were moving, and a couple that were boring. But that's sort of par for the course. So I was really surprised by that. And then... And we can get into some specific things, but I also thought that in general, it was nice that there was a relatively democratic spread of winners. Almost, I believe every, I, I don't, I don't have the raw data, but it seems like every best picture nominee won something. Yeah, I think that's um, right. I think, I think that's, that's right. I think that's right. And I, I'm not trying to be like millennial, everyone gets a participation trophy <laughs> thing here. But in the arbitrariness of these awards, sorry, Kaya, uh, in the arbitrariness of these awards, that was sort of, so it, it actually kind of was a bomb, right? Because I think that there were a lot of good movies nominated, there were some bad movies nominated, but people were passionate about all of them. And on a year that felt so uh, argumentative and fighty from the beginning, that was not a bad, not a bad outcome. Now, we can definitely get into some of some specifics, but in general, I was so impressed by how brisk the whole thing was. And that, yes, we live in a post movie star culture, except for Julia Roberts. And the show seemed to understand that. And so it gave us best case scenario, Hollywood of like young, bright, diverse, talented people who are on the come up as opposed to, you know, let's, let's bring out Jack again and I'll make jokes about how Jack's there and maybe drunk. And I don't think Jack's been there stuff. for a couple of years. I, I get what you're saying. Though. And, and, and I think that, um, if you ask a hundred people across the country what the Oscars mean to them, I think you're going to get a hundred different answers. And some of those answers might just be like, what's the Oscars at this point? But I do think that the show matters. And I do think that it it makes the case for the, mo for the movies is still like pretty much the central popular culture medium of the country. I, I, I liked, you know, I was really struck by... Olivia Coleman getting on stage and saying, I have like, I have an Oscar and, and just sort of like that, watching that mm -hmm. hit her. And it, it kind of, I do think that it still is sort of like one of those iconic achievements in our, in our culture that you can have. I personally now feel like the, the, the length of the award season makes me feel like by the time of Oscars night, it's sort of like, if I can borrow a, an idea from the right Ricky Sanchez podcast, I basically feel like I'm in a stuck in a room with Jigsaw from the Saw movies, and it's like, what do I want to cut off here to get out of this thing? All right, and it's like you're basically hoping for the best possible outcome in a in a, and by the time it actually happens, you're like, I'm so tired of talking about these same six movies. But I kind of came out the other side of this Oscars, kind of thinking like, you know what, man, it is pretty cool that the tax is the ping-ponging back and forth between Green Book, Roma, Bohemian Rhapsody, whatever. And we talk about it, and we talk about it, and we talk about it, and we, we game theory it out. But then the benefit is really 
a lot of other people hear about Free Solo and a lot of other people hear about Minding the Gap and a lot of people might go check out The Favorite now and a lot of people might check out Roma who didn't already. And those are that's really the, the bullhorn effect that the Oscars has. I think not only for the night itself, but for the entire months leading up to it is still a really effective promotional vehicle for movies that really deserve attention. Yes, and... I think good movies that speak to the moment are a better ad for movies than montages of classic dance routines. And I like dance routines in movies. And by the way, it was an outrage that Stanley Donan wasn't in the in memoriam montage. You could squeeze another face in there, dudes. Like he died the day before the ceremony. Anyway, one thing that I was thinking as I was watching it. Uh, oh, and sorry, I was just going to say that like to, to that point, like Guillermo del Toro's uh, introduction to the Best Director Oscar was quite... A, quite a nice and, and genuine and kind of almost moving summation of this, where he said he, he had to be there because what a treat it is as a director and filmmaker to be presenting an award to one of these people, all of whom made deeply personal, interesting movies, whether you, you know, whether they, however you want to rank them in terms of, of preference. Yeah. And I also and, felt that when, uh, when Regina King won the sort of the warmth that she seemed to feel for her fellow nominees was really sincere and, and, and quite moving. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking about this a lot and I think that you can look at the Oscar when you're looking at the Oscars, I would go from the more specific and obscure categories as you move from them all the way up to best picture, the, uh, universality of the award thins, meaning they should never, ever, ever eliminate the best short film award because whatever dreamers, weirdo kids win that are going to be the most genuinely excited because it's the most impactful on their career. And frankly, it probably means something. It probably means in the same way that like the screenplay awards are always, I think a little bit more artistically in, in line with certainly with me, but maybe with, with other critics or people who see a lot of movies, which would mean not me, but the people who vote on that really have an opinion about what might be the best. And when you get to the, but when you move all the way up the chain, the winner of best picture is not going to reflect honestly, anyone's idea of what the best movie of the year is. It's an artificial construct. What you're getting is the best, you know, you're get you're getting some kind of soggy consensus out of a very, very large and diverse electorate. And when I say diverse, I don't mean the diversity that has dominated the conversation, and rightly so. What I mean is diverse in terms of age. And right. there are a lot of old people in the Academy. And I'm not even going to say Green Book is good or bad. I will say that even by my own informal straw poll, olds love it. What, olds love it. Can you give me and a little I, bit I, of insight into your your polling methods? Like, are, are you are you I, like uh, a YouGov for for Green Book? <laughs> I went outside of a senior center recently, and I no, I mean, you know, once you get up to that rarefied air of Best Picture where everyone is voting, that's when you run into the stuff that people who go to the multiplex or vote with their dollars are not, they're not in on those conversations. And it's not just the people who are quoted anonymously in the Hollywood reporter saying, I'm voting for green book because I don't want anyone to tell me what I'm not allowed to like anymore. But also the people who say I'm not voting for Roma because I don't want to reward Netflix for their disruptive influence on cinema chains. Right. That's a level of voting a political agenda. And I don't mean that for it to be as weighted as it sounds because vote, but voting against Netflix is also a political agenda. That's what's happening up there. Look, I, you know, I was texting you this morning about this and I am all for, uh, proxy wars mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's really all we have, uh, at this stage. I am all for 
taking things way too seriously in the cultural field. It was my job for many years, and it's something that I still enjoy doing. I am still personally offended that the fish fucking movie won last year because, <laughs> guys, I can't imagine Green Book is worse than that. But that's just me. But what I what made me crazy is. And, may, and I feel like you, you said this in a more rational, calm, not naming names way, and maybe you can come back and say it again, but I love Roma. I think Roma is a masterpiece. I think The Favorite is probably a masterpiece also. But if Roma had won Best Picture last night, Donald Trump would still be president. Like, that, this wasn't going to fix stuff, you know? And I, and I, and I just want to reject the hyperbole that seems to be coming out over this howling. It, I just don't. I don't, I just don't see the, the, the purpose of it. You know, I think that there are a lot of older voters in the Academy and people seem to genuinely like Green Book. And so that won best picture, but Roma won three trophies. The favorite won a surprise upset. You know, it, it was a remarkably diverse, um, diverse group of Oscar winners last night. Change is incremental and go back over the last 50 years of Oscar winners and name the years where you think the best movie of the year won best picture trophy. That's not generally what it's about. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the political aspect of this and you even invoked, uh, he shoot who shall not be named. Not that we were having an aversion to talking about Trump, but Sean Fennessy. I think that, uh, one of the things that's sort of a hallmark for the moment we're living in right now is this second to second analysis and updating of processes that usually take a really long time. Like you're saying, change is slow, change is incremental. And I think actually like, it's really good that there are people out there who are like, I don't, I'm no longer interested in change being slow or incremental. And I think that that's an extension of this. I think that the frustration towards green book winning is, is an, is an extension of the larger frustration people have with, we've been waiting a long time for progress and see, look, mm -hmm. this is where it got us. You know what I mean? All the little, like, hey, don't push too hard, too early, too soon, whatever. Like, that's how we kind of wind up where we are with all these compromises and all these sort of like, totally. hey, you don't want don't to push things too hard. And I, I, so I kind of am into that. I'm kind of into it just being like, nah, fuck that. Um, now, it, does it make for a good award show? No, it can feel kind of incongruous. And, and I, I actually, to be fair... I'm trying to remember the last time when you were talking about, oh, if Roma had won. Like, I'm trying to remember the last time where I was like, wow, the thing that everybody liked oh. won all the awards. Oh, well, I, I, two years ago, Moonlight won Best Picture. Yes, but like, that even, that the happened. shock of that was almost, it almost offset the enormity of the moment because of the, the sort of sideshow to it, though. It's true, but I'm just saying you can't un, you can't unmake that happen. No, that's bad tensing. But look, look it happened. Like the same Academy that voted Moonlight Best Picture voted Green Book Best Picture. Mm -hmm. The same and Mahershala Ali won an Oscar for both. So maybe he's the magic sauce, you know? Um, but just like, God, I'm sorry, I'm making this political in a way that I didn't intend to. But no, the same okay. country I think it's Obama inevitable. voted for Trump, right? Like the same, theoretically, that's the same, the same, you know, plus or minus a few 10,000 Russians. Those are the same people <laughs> voting complete polar opposites from each other. It is a big messy electorate in both cases. And, you know, I, I, I choose, again, I, I have the privilege of choosing to do this because the movie business does not affect my life. Um, celebrate the good things that happened last night. And again, I think that it speaks very highly of the Academy that they put forward such a, um, such an, such a, a an interesting forward looking and diverse group of presenters 
and rewarded uh, similarly a, a, a forward-looking group of of uh, artists. I Would think you, that that yeah. speaks to the change that we all hope to see in our institutions more succinctly and optimistically than whoever got the last trophy of the night. And then... I guess so. I would I would ask you this. So do you talk about that? Like, what were some of your favorite moments of the night? Then, like, uh, obviously Olivia Coleman. Obviously, you mentioned. Yeah, the, look, Olivia Coleman. I want to speak to that not just because she's tremendous, because she is you know incandescent as a talent. That was one of the first pure surprises pop culture in a good way. Pop culture has given me in a long time. I don't know when. Maybe it it goes hand in hand with the just the complete like that there's an Oscar season now and that everything is being hashed out and ripped apart and discussed constantly on the, on Twitter. But like prior to the last few years, I didn't maybe know enough to realize that there was this drumbeat of award season where the same people started winning the same awards at Gotham, independent spirit, golden globes, whatever, like that led to the inevitability of Oscar night. And then the guild awards. Yeah. Right. But the last few years when we have, uh, you know, when we were hosting after shows and things, there was very little surprise in the acting categories. And again, last night was three out of four were exactly as everyone predicted them to be. But so for that moment to be totally gobsmacked by, by what happened, and then for the per- the winner herself to be gobsmacked, and then to be so outrageously, incredibly delightful and appropriate in the moment, just sort of laughing at it, being like, I can't believe this happened. But with the same level, as you mentioned at the beginning of appreciation, is just awesome. I mean, she is one of our great actors. She can do comedy, she can do drama, she can do anything. Her performance in the favorite it's kind of a supporting role, but it's, she deserves trophies. And that was a thrilling moment. Yeah. It's also, I think Sean and Amanda talked about this last night in a really interesting way, which is essentially like by the time you get to the Oscars night, especially in the acting categories, if those things have been solidified, like you, Mahershala Ali has given his speech several times by that point, you know yeah. what I mean? So it's hard to, even if the enormity of him now being a two-time Oscar winner hits you and hits him, it still doesn't have that lightning in a bottle effect that I think Olivia Coleman did. I would also say one of my favorite moments in terms of uh, winners and acceptance speeches was definitely uh, Spike Lee winning for yeah. uh, adapted screenplay and seeing him jump into the arms of Samuel L. Jackson and kind of have, God, what is it, like 30-some 30, 30 years of movie history kind of yeah. come rushing to the present and just their collaboration over the course of Spike's career. And, the, the, you know, they've had public disagreements, but they've also had like this incredibly rewarding thing where Spike essentially like launched Samuel L. Jackson into, into a kind of stardom with, with, with some of his early performances, like in, in jungle fever and stuff. And it was just, it was a really, really, really cool moment. Even if I have no idea what Spike Lee said in the first like bleeped out yeah. portion of his speech. But look, that was incredible. And it's worth remembering, the Oscars rarely get it right, or at least even when they do get it right, they don't get it right in the ways you'd expect, right? Like there are many filmmakers whom you and I love who are Oscar winners, but they're not Oscar winners for the thing they're known for, right? Yes. There are a bunch of directors who have won for writing. And so Spike Lee deserves to have the adjective Oscar winner before his name. He should have had it a long time ago. It's going to be for this movie that neither you or I loved. And that, by the way... Pity be the dudes whose script was rewritten by Spike Lee and then arbitrated into a shared credit because they knew they get an Oscar out of it, but they right. do not get within 10 feet of the microphone. <laughs> but, but seeing him win was wonderful if you've been a fan. Wonderful if you're just a fan of like seeing emotional, surprising things happen like that at award shows. But also it was a reminder. Again, this is a corny observation potentially, but of like the, the shared 
culture of Hollywood in the best possible sense. Like, as you said, they have feuded before. They've disagreed about things. Spike Lee walked out when Green Book won and then had to return to his seat. Like, but he is not, he cares is, which is why he's so angry about things and why he's ornery about things in, within the world of cinema. Obviously, I'm not even, I'm now trying to divorce this conversation from one of politics in the larger world, but it, he wants to be included and he wants to have a seat at the table and he wanted to win an Oscar as he should. And I really, I really enjoyed his presence there. I really enjoyed him being there, you know, joking around from the crowd with Barbara Streisand. Like he, he should have been there. He should be there much more often. Yeah. And because he is a crucial part of the movies for us in our lifetime. And it's weird that it took this long for him to be recognized and for him to even be invited in. But again, it doesn't matter what he won for. He won. And I think that's, I think that's terrific. Uh, any other moments you want to shout out before we head on to True Detective? Well, I mean, just, you know, I, I was really happy with the favorite one. I was really happy to see Rachel Wise and Emma Stone's, like, love with Olivia Coleman and how, and Yorgos was crying. Yo, Emma Stone was, was delightful when Olivia won. Yeah, that was awesome. It, it's such a cool, the more I think about that movie, the more I think that that might end up being, like, sneaky the best movie of the year. Because I just, it's just no perfect. I thought Quaron was great. I mean, we said it at the time, like, Roma is not an easy sell. And it is a multiple Oscar winner. And that's a really good thing. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I have to say, I thought it was a pretty good night for, uh, guests of the watch. I thought a lot of, uh, I, I thought a lot of, uh, former guests of our podcast were doing pretty well up there from Rami to, uh, John Mulaney to Jakey J up there in his tux <laughs> for Spider-Verse. So I thought, you know, as usual, it just reflects back well on us. Do you think so Jake what, Johnson regrets not becoming the watch co-host and instead going on to do Spider-Verse? I have to tell you, I saw, I ran into him, this is, this is life. I ran into him, uh, at kids gymnastics the other week and he definitely seemed like he was fully retired from the business. <laughs> like he definitely had, you know, you know, some people put on the baseball cap to like avoid paparazzi. He looked like he just put on the baseball cap because he woke up in the morning, you know, like he was, he was delightful to see him. Yeah. So I, he's really enjoying this ride. I think he's very happy about it. Um, how do you feel? Is, is there is there a cultural reset? Is there anything like after last night? Have things changed tectonically as the conversation shifted? I just feel, I personally feel like, and we talked about this last Thursday when we were doing our anticipation index. I was like, let's let's get into the new shit. Like even the non-visual Irishman teaser. I was like, let's go. Let's go with Fosse Verdon, which had a great teaser last night. All the HBO stuff that got released, the sort of teaser that they did that had Watchmen, Veep, the Deadwood movie, holy shit. Like, all the stuff that's coming, like, I'm just like, I'm ready to, I'm, I feel, it's this weird thing in culture, you're always moving forward, where we always, like, lament the fact that we don't spend time with these TV shows, especially the Netflix shows that go up in a blink and everybody's watched them and we're scratching to catch up with them. But it's it's Oscars night that I feel like that. It's that that's the night I'm like, let's change the channel towards the new thing and let's start this new conversation about the new art that's coming out. I, I agree with that. I would just say as a final note though, I felt some of that energy at the Oscars in a way that I really enjoyed. Like Michael B. Jordan and Tessa Thompson coming out and I'm like, they're movie stars. Let's see what they're gonna do for the next 15 years. Like Ryan Coogler wasn't nominated, but everyone was thanking him and his presence was so clear about what what the opportunities he's given and he's continuing to give to people to change the face of Hollywood. Like Ludwig Goransson, who, you know, five years ago was doing the, the score for community on NBC and 
now I think he's doing the Mandalorian, which there's no higher, uh, <laughs> no higher. There's no higher honor in our business. Yeah, seriously. I just thought that there was kind of a glamorous night. And I thought that this new generation of younger talent held its own on the stage. Like even, you know, Aquafina and John Mulaney, which if you, even if you told me a year ago, like they would be presenting together at the Oscars, I'd be like, well, they, I, I, it would suggest to me that maybe people had said no, but in fact, they were great and people enjoyed them and they will probably be on a stage like that together or separately for the next 20 or 30 years. And that's a good thing. All right. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and then Greenwald's going to come back and we're going to talk really quickly about True Detective season finale. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Bud Light. Did you know not all alcohol products are required to list their ingredients? This, this was news to me. Bud Light, though, they're changing the game. They believe that we deserve to know our beer's ingredients, so they put an ingredients label right on the packaging. Bud Light, brewed with hops, barley water, and rice. No corn syrup, no preservatives, and no artificial flavors. Find out what ingredients are in your beer. Bud Light. Enjoy responsibly. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. The new Surface Pro 6 can help you get things done, whether you're on the field or running a business. Take Brian Arakpo and Michael Griffin, two former NFL teammates who have opened a cupcake shop. With the Surface Pro, they can do everything they need, from setting schedules to creating promotions for social media and designing new flavors. Plus... It's light, super fast, and has a great battery life. Brian and Michael are proving you can tackle all your passions with the power and speed of the new Surface Pro 6. All right, we're back. So last night, really, it was a really funny experience because I think, you know, me and Jason Concepcion and Sean Yu and the whole Flat Circle crew, we were over at the Ringer's Chapel stage getting ready to shoot Flat Circle after the episodes. We didn't get the episode in advance. And at one point, I think Jordan Liggins, who's our research, uh, the sort of director of research for the Flat Circle, was like, where would you put your, no, Snowden asked me this, where would you put your uh, anticipation level for this? Like one to 10. And I was like, eight, eight. I think that they saved up a lot of the juice for the finale and that there's going to be some big twists and all the timelines are going to collide and we're going to get a strong connection to season one and a lot of this stuff is going to be it's just going to be an amazing episode with a lot of action and a lot of intrigue and it wasn't necessarily that i thought that was the only way it could end but that was what i kind of interpreted the slow build to be you know after after the two saulnier episodes there was kind of a little bit of a lull and then i felt like five six seven really started to build up and then eight wound up being an incredibly divisive and an incredibly subversive, I think, episode of television. Now, that does not necessarily mean that it was not a bad episode of television, which is a really valid read on that. But I'm still unpacking it because I was going into it being like, hold on to your butts. And then afterwards, Jason and I just sort of sat there and talked about like, okay, I guess like the real mystery is like the mystery of these, you know, barely held connections we have between one another in in throughout our lives you know like relationships that we have and and the the weird things that can happen in your life that can destroy those relationships or strengthen those relationships or what have you now i don't know so you tell me as someone who watched this after the oscars with no right. vested interest what did you think 
I I am surprised ultimately that True Detective season three was a roughly ten hour meditative haunting reflection on how you should always listen to your wife. I I never would have expected that that's what this show was. And I think that there are two ways of looking at it. And I think that because of my sort of, I I can't tell if it's because of my casual almost investment week to week in this show, uh, or if it's because I am watching it through different eyes, you know, trying to be a creator myself, I feel much more gentle to it than I think I might otherwise. I know the, the review of it that I could write. And I'm not drawn to writing it because I do appreciate that after all of the misdirection and all of the hours and all of the conversation, what seemed to motivate Nick Pizzolatto in this season of television was, as you said, the way time is the real killer in the parts of your life that matter, right? That it, it was about the marriage. It was about the family. It was about male friendship mm-hmm. above all else. That is quite a misdirect from the show we thought we were watching for a number of episodes. It's also a misdirect from the show we were watching for the last few seasons, which I frankly don't think were about that at all. I think they were about often uh, spectacle and conspiracy and plot above all else. Yeah, and it was also a misdirection from what happened in the beginning of the episode when they said the sort of little bumper that they run before the episode focused in on Eliza showing Wayne the the website with Marty and Rust from season one on it. And you're yeah. kind of like, okay, here we go. We might even get a McConaughey sighting. And none of those three people wound up being in the episode. Now, on a purely like nuts and bolts level, I think there were there were some things that we could criticize here. Yeah. Like the people who done it, such as they did are not characters that were even in the first episode. No, they tell it like it's The Conjuring. It's like Isabel, this ghost who is wandering these halls. Yeah. That's kind of a, it's breaking a rule of mysteries, which is fine to do, but that's sort of a, that's sort of a big one. Two, it's pretty wild that the entire mystery that we, that they spent quite a bit of time exploring. And again, this was an 84 minute finale was just downloaded to us in a monologue by a character we had barely seen. Which is not completely foreign to the mystery novel experience. Correct. There are lots of, like, I mean, almost every James Elroy book, uh, the the protagonist finally finds the guy who went missing on page 25, and that guy is like, here's what you need to know about everything that's happened over the last 450 pages. it's, it's Agatha Christie yeah. as well. I yeah. mean, it's like, let's, I'll explain to you what happened. Um, it's a strange choice for a visual medium, but it, you know, it's worth noting. And then, and then ultimately the fact that the, the last piece of the puzzle was also not given to our main character. It was the ghost of his dead wife literally telling him what happened. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit like, it reminded me a little bit of the, movie phone episode of Seinfeld where Kramer is like, why don't you just tell me the movie you'd like to see? Those were wild, wild choices that I definitely bumped on narratively speaking. And then underneath that, I think that what ultimately tripped me up about the season was that 
I, I'm, look, I, I'm ultimately really happy that I went on this, on this journey for a number of reasons, mostly, you know, performance based, but also for the fact that at the end of the day, a, a, a writer creator who, whose interests I feel like have often not been aligned with mine was interested in something that I also am interested in. Now that's not, that's a very selfish way of looking at art or television. I'm not saying that's the litmus test for anything, but the fact that he was ultimately making a show about friendship and family and, you know, personal relationships and all that, like that's, that was a real curveball that I did not expect. I think ultimately it was undone to some degree by the fact that at the end of the, I keep saying 10 hours because cumulatively, I think that's what it was. Yeah. I think ultimately it was maybe. I don't know who Wayne is or why we spent that much time with him. Well, and I think that to, to be fair, Amelia gets it that, you know, Amelia is like, you're, you're yes. doing what you're doing because you think you learned it in the movies and ultimately you're empty. And that was obviously as cutting as she possibly could be. But I think that there is, when you're doing as much timeline jumping, and I, I feel like they really got away from practical action. And I don't mean that in set pieces, but I mean that in uh, these guys are rooted in a place, are doing a job, are completing tasks. And that's how you sort of learn character to me. Like, I think that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's a way in which you find out who people are, just seeing how they interact. And then I... I thought you could see some stitches on the outs showing last night. I, I don't know anything about the production or the process of the late part of the season, but I felt like there were a couple of voiceovers that were like trying to stitch together scenes that felt very yes, like late that. in the game. And there was a lot of uh, Roland and, and Wayne sitting in a car going different places, but like with no explanation as to like how two senior citizen men just seem to be able to pick up the job of police officers with no one noticing after that had been such a major issue over the course of the last 20 years as people being like, don't investigate this case. Yes. Well, or that the, the, the conversation with Mr. Hoyt is ultimately just a conversation that circles and does nothing. Right. You know, it, it, it's hard to make, it is incredibly honorable and artistically worthwhile to make a show about how things are ultimately pointless or the struggles we come up, up as we try to make things matter in this world. It's another thing to actually make that, uh, to pull it off mm-hmm. and sell people on it. And I think that it, it foundered a little bit on that. And, and the timeline thing, which is, you know, really interesting for storytelling, I agree also foundered because we suddenly had a fourth timeline that didn't really add much. And the 2005 the finale, which again, yeah. was, But in the end, when we're... Uh, you know, in an episode that was very, very well stuffed, let's say, the only things left to show us were things we didn't necessarily need to know that like Wayne didn't like being in the typing pool, you know, or that Wayne and Amelia once had a conversation where they were like, we're not sure if we like each other or we should stay married. Right. Where they just talk about the thing that we've been watching. Like they showed us and then later they told us. And then for me, the, the, the ultimate indignity was I'm not sure if... Uh, Roland needed an origin story for his love of dogs. <laughs> like, I think most people like dogs. You know I, what I mean? I think that that was... So the, one of the uh, big sort of things that people were chewing on, on on Reddit was whether or not Roland was gay and whether or not that was so, supposed to be uh, an under... Like a sort of an ambiguity or whether or not there were suggestions that Roland was in love with Wayne or that he felt somehow abandoned by Wayne. 
Uh, I'm sure Nick Pizzolatto has answered that question somewhere in his Instagram comments, which is where he does most of his communicating about True Detective. But is that true? Yeah, he goes, he just jumps in and he's like, Amelia passed away happily in her sleep in 2008. It's like, it's just like oh. he's just dropping jewels in there. But um, the Roland character, I thought, was maybe the strongest part of the season in some ways because I, no, I, agree totally. I thought he co- it constantly kept me guessing in a good way. And they did a lot of showing and not telling with him, whereas Mahershala was forced to do a lot of telling. And, you know, the more and more I kind of think about it, the more I think this was just way more Terrence Malick than it was Alan Pakula or, you know, crime show of choice to just pick pick a crime director out of nowhere and, and say that. It was way more ambient and way more philosophical and reflective. And nowhere is that better on display than the very last shot of the season and possibly even the series. Uh, what did you think of that very last moment? I, I, I think that you're doing the Lord's work, making that comparison to saying that it was more, uh, you know, meditative and, and Terrence Malicky. The problem was that's the type of storytelling that requires a Fukunaga or a Sonia, or at least at the very least a, a single directorial vision. This season didn't have that. And so it became much more, you know, interrogation scene, interrogation scene, interrogation scene. So the moments of, of lyricism or, or poetry that we saw on the screen were more jarring than they ought to have been. I really liked the last shot. Yeah. I really liked it. I mean, and it was I wished... the coolest thing I'd seen. <laughs> I mean, it was definitely, yeah. I was like, I, I immediately looked at the time because I was like, oh my God, are they going to do a Vietnam sequence? And Jason and I even looked at each other and said, did he never come back? But obviously, that's you know that's not the case. I think that a lot of people have been saying hey, this is like him folding back into his mind one last time. You know, as we I, see. Yes, but I do think that it's a missed opportunity for the visual storytelling to match the written intention because I wish that we had been left with a clearer stylistic uh, set of decision making so that when he sort of loses track of where he is with the real Lucy at the end. I knew that that was true or wasn't true. It felt very like a little bit in between Yeah, that he either did forget where he was or he decided to let her live in peace. I didn't feel the intention, although clearly there was intention. Similarly at the end, I wish that there had been a little bit more of a clear choice that this is what I don't need to be handheld, but I, what I, in terms of what yeah, why did Henry keep the piece of paper? What was up with Becca crying in the car with him? And why mirror the kids, the Purcell kids, riding away on their bikes with um, with Henry's kids riding away on their bikes? And that being the thing that triggers this sort of last memory that we see Wayne having. I, there was a lot of like, are you just, are you not sure? Do you not trust us to... To handle that, like what was what was sort of the the ultimate point there? It it felt it felt muddled, which is unfortunate. And I and I, I can't stress enough that I think that you know I, I have had uh, hyperbolic reactions to the show yeah. in the past. No, I can't, I feel I, like I'm on another planet talking to you about this. Well, I, I I can't tell if I've mellowed or the show has mellowed or both, but. Uh, or this is just a you know a factor of seeing things in a different way. I think that you know being a critic, I was much less patient with things because there was always more things to watch. And as everyone listening knows, I don't watch anything anymore, so I have plenty of time. No, uh, but but genuinely, like I think that I, what I was trying to chase and watching it was trying to figure out what the intention is. What are they going after? What's the best case version of this? 
And, you know, I, if anything, I felt slight frustration when I, when I felt like the show didn't reach it. Um, you know, I think the most successful thing about it was the, the friendship between them that I didn't feel like the main, it didn't, that didn't feel like the focus early enough on, you know, I, yeah. actually that's not true. The first time we meet them when they're shooting rats or whatever, there's a real sense of like young men who are friends because they're together, not because of any other reason. Otherwise they would never know each other. And I kind of wish we could have stayed on that, but there were so many other things to get to and red herrings to introduce that it, I lost it a little bit and yeah. I was happy to get some of it back in the end, particularly, I guess, I don't know if it was last week that we talked about it the week before, but when the old, when the old, dogs ride again like that was that was probably the show at its best so the last question i have for you and we kind of touched on this when i laid out my my five point plan for uh, true detective going forward but after seeing this episode do you want another season yes and no i mean it's in i mean I i'm fascinated by this show now i'm fascinated by what it was what it tried to be and what it seems to be settling into um I, you know I, I i guess my answer is yes I guess I do because I'm really curious. Welcome, brother. Here we are. <laughs> but I mean, we're kind of diagnosing. We're diagnosing a creator, an auteur from the work, which is kind of what we do as a society these days and what we do on this podcast. And I, I don't, I feel like it's an incomplete diagnosis. I'm curious now what actually is motivating him and what, since, since every season has felt deeply reactionary to the one before. Uh, I'm curious what the reaction. This one, I mean, the finale like felt reactionary to the season itself. The the finale was sort of like, you guys, I hope you had fun, you know, with satanic ritual abuse and the West Memphis Three and looking up conspiracies from the Midwest in the 1980s and all that stuff. But in the end, it was really just about this guy who, in part, never fully came back from Vietnam and the 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 few connections that he made in his life afterwards and how they were altered and saved or put into crisis by this murder. And, and that was, I, I, you know, I don't know whether or not he felt like he needed to sell people on one version of it so that he could do the version he wanted to, or whether it was a middle finger or whether he was like, no, it's all part of the same story. And he just, I don't know. I mean, like there, there's too much stuff in that show for it not to be a bat signal to get on the internet and look up stuff and try and figure shit out. I mean, the, the Crooked Spiral stuff, all the connections to season one, they were there. That was not people digging. But in the end, it didn't really didn't really seem to matter as much as Wayne and Amelia in a bar trying to work shit out. Yeah. What a fascinating thing it was. Yeah, really I was. think if people I'm are going to be like, it's, it. I, I'm really curious to see how it ages, and I'm very curious to see. He mentioned it in it, Pizzolatto said in an Entertainment Weekly interview at the beginning of the year, uh, at the beginning of the season, he was like, I have an idea for a fourth, but I don't know if I'm going to do it. Uh, Andy. What a thoughtful and lovely conversation. If you had $100 on Andy loving getting into True Detective in 2019, you can collect your winnings. Um, if, if you had $200 on John Mulaney and Aquafina being on stage at the Oscars like I did, yeah, you're rich. Dinner. Exactly. Uh, Greenwald, thanks so much, man. We'll talk to you on Thursday. Great. This was, this was really a great job, Baranskis. It really was. Sometimes I just say it. Just felt like it. 